0: every team, every topic, everywhere this is believe. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Recap coming to you after the Revolution's scoreless draw with Toronto FC. A relatively tame match came to life with a 78th minute penalty kick call against Matt Polster. Pretty controversial. Um, after a lengthy VAR delay, Lorenzo Insignia's penalty was saved by Georgi Petrovic. The Revolution did have a chance to get a late winner with Giacomo Rioni, uh, but he missed the late chance to steal the win for the Revolution. I'm Sean Donahue, and joining me today is Greg Johnstone. Greg, how's it going?
1: It's going great, Sean, and we're making history here today. Uh, this is the first podcast that we've done, uh, well, the first Revolution recap since we rebooted it, where we are sitting in the same room. We're not talking to a computer screen. I think this is, what, the first time since you did the radio show in Rhode Island? I
0: think this is the first time since a podcast I did with Brian O'Connell maybe like 12 years ago or something in my parents' dining room. So
1: Yeah, so this is history in the making, and... What better way to break history than discussing a, another 0-0 zero, zero draw? So uh, I'm really excited. Uh, before I get started, I do want to talk briefly about the supporters game that I did play-by-play commentary for. Uh, I had a great day, so I just want to thank the Rebellion and the Midnight Riders for having me. Uh, did not go as planned. Our plan A in terms of audio and video setup uh, did not work out and ended up me just being me Uh on a phone, on Instagram Live, uh, doing play-by-play. Uh, I also was unable to secure a second commentator. So it's really just me talking for 90 minutes uh, while trying to hold a camera level. Uh, but if you want to watch the supporters game, it was a great game. Uh, spoiler alert, skip if you don't want to know who wins. Uh, but the Rebellion won 8-5 to five, uh, in a really impressive game to be honest with you I was surprised at the uh, level of play and both teams had some really really solid moments and uh, I-, I had a blast calling the game so uh, certainly some amateur cam- uh, camera work uh, and uh, commentary on today's game uh, on that when you go to the Rebellion's Instagram page to watch uh, I-, I don't think I impressed any Apple TV commentary scouts uh, but uh, you know a lot of fun was had by all and uh, if we are invited to it next year I have some notes on how to improve it but I just wanted to thank the Rebellion and uh, Mike and Mike Simeone uh, especially for uh, helping me get up set up. Uh, I also want to thank Chris Creighton uh, of the Midnight Riders for providing me a roster, which I didn't get to look at too much because I was also a cameraman, which I was not expecting to be today. Uh, and I also want to give a couple of shout-outs, too, to a couple of people I met. Uh, I met Rob at The Rebellion, uh, who I met after the game, who who said he's a listener of the show uh, and was really excited to meet someone who uh, knew who I was and recognized me and, and, and uh, really appreciate his kind words. Um, and I also want to thank uh, Amy of the Midnight Riders, who did not know who I was, Uh, but I was sitting next to a water cooler the entire game and I couldn't really put the phone down to get water Uh, and Amy had the presence of mind to see me staring at the water cooler uh, desperately wanting water uh, and she quietly handed me a cup of water and uh, I don't think my voice would have made it uh, in the second half without her. So uh, great day. Uh, I had a ton of fun at the Sporters game. If you didn't watch it, uh, it is available on the Rebellion's Instagram page. And uh, just a massive, massive thank you to the Rebellion and the Midnight Riders for uh, including us and, and letting me try to do commentary on today's game. And uh, as I say, hopefully, uh, you know, if, if we get invited to do it again next year, uh, I'd, I'd love to be a part of it and hopefully it'll go a little bit smoother, uh, all things considered.
0: Well, based on our question list today, everyone wants to talk about referees. So the real question is, how was the refereeing at the Sporters Cup?
1: Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't have any issue with it, and I learned afterward. I think it was Curtis Burke. Uh, and so uh, I, I don't remember any many controversial calls. I think there was one goal called back uh, for for an offside which I think, think some writers were, were not pleased with, and that would have been a pretty big turning point in the game. Uh, but overall, I thought the refereeing here was much better than last night. So maybe Curtis Burke has a career as an MLS referee in the future. I'm not sure.
0: Uh, there was also one other game this weekend, the unofficial media game organized by the bent musket. And I, I got a question there from Alex Dolan. He wants to know about the goal you scored. I heard there was a great goal by Greg Johnson. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So I did score one goal. Uh, there, there's photos of my celebration, uh, somewhere also shout out to Carrie, uh, for, for taking photographs. There's a lot of good photographs that I'm sure will pop up on social media over the next week or so. But, uh, we play with the little mini goals. We didn't play full goals. It was six on six or seven on seven. And so, uh, I, I just had a breakaway tap in, uh, but I certainly celebrated like it was the most athletic thing I've ever done in my life. Um, And I'm sure I'll show the, uh, I'm sure I'll share the celebration photos when they come up. But uh, on that note, great game today in the supporters game, uh, supporters cup game. It was a real back and forth. There were three ties, three lead changes, Real back-and-forth momentum swings. None of that in the media game. The Bent Musket, we really got pounded. Uh, Eventually, Jay Catanese showed up. We had a one-man advantage, and one player on the other team was a small child, uh, and they were still outscoring us. So uh, next year, I think, uh, us at the Bent Musket, um, we need to coordinate a little bit better, and we need to really come out. And uh, we have a lot to prove next year. That's all I'm going to say.
0: You can tell we don't want to talk about the 0 0 Toronto game. Based on
1: this so far. Why would we talk about a scoreless game? When we can talk about eight. I went to an 8 5 game, and now I got to come home and talk 0 0. It's boring.
0: Well, well, on that note, Toronto finished the match with a 1.6 to 0.7 edge in expected goals, thanks in large part to the penalty kick. Uh, but obviously not not a lot going on outside the penalty kick for either team. Um, with that, let's get right into our key takeaways, which are brought to you by our friends at the Rebellion supporters group. We just talked a bit about the supporters game today. That's one of the advantages of being a member of one of the supporters groups is getting to participate in that. Um, and be sure to check them out on Twitter at Any rebellion and also on their website, anyrebellion.org. Greg, what is your takeaway from this
1: one? I think the Revs need Bo and Barrero desperately. And Frioni coming into the team, getting incorporated in the team, certainly is going to help over the next few weeks. But, but Gustavo Bo has been on fire. When he's been healthy, he has been a major, major impact player for this team. And unfortunately, he just can't stay on the field. Barrero, too, adds a lot of speed on the wing. He adds a dynamic force on the wing. And the Revolution just don't have any offensive firepower without them, it seems like. Uh, this is the second straight week where not a whole lot going offensively for the Revs. They do take away a point. They do end up holding a uh, a clean sheet. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the Revs are going to need to start putting three points together. They have not won a game in the last six matches. They have not won a game since Matt Turner was on the team back in mid-June. We, we went through the playoff scenarios last week and how many points they need to get. They need to get to around 50 points. They're not going to be able to do that with scoreless draws. And I understand there are some injuries. And I understand it's based on personnel. And I understand why Justin Renick started up top. And I understand why Tommy McNamara started on the wing. Uh, but if you have Bo and Barrero in this game, I think it plays out very, very differently. And I think the Revs are in a much, much better position to generate some offense. So, praying for Gustavo Bow and Dylan Barrero to get back out there soon, because if they don't get them and we have more 1-1 or 0-0 draws and very low scoring affairs, uh, I think the Revs are very, very disadvantaged in terms of their playoff chances.
0: And Bruce Arena did say they should be back next week. So that's good news. But Barrero wasn't on the injury report this week. Um, So I think I was kind of expecting him to play this game. Um, And then it was a surprise to see him not in the squad. But Arena says they should be back next week. So take that for what it's worth. But I, I agree with you. I think that they're vitally important to this revolution offense i think the offense is far too predictable um without barrero in particular he's added a lot to this offense um we you know Legette and mcnamara were the wingers in this game neither of them are natural wingers uh you know to me, this was a very defensive lineup that the Rose put out to start this match. You know, you have guys in McNamara that can kind of do the work defensively, but probably aren't the most creative guys offensively on the wings. Also not the speediest guys. Um, you know, LeJet's another guy that, I mean, as lots to the offense, but he's not a natural winger. And when he came to the Revolution, he talked about wanting to play as a you know central attacking mid. That wasn't his role in this game. Um, so I'm with you. I think Barrero is extremely important. I think Bo is extremely important. I think Rioni, if he steps up, might make Bo a little bit less important um but you know as we saw in this game he wasn't quite there with the sharpness the fitness isn't quite there yet um I think we'll get there but you know I, I, he himself said he needed to score that goal that he missed at the end um but really this is like the second week of preseason for him if we're you know realistically looking at where he's at and I think I think it looked like that um so yeah I I, I agree the offense is too stagnant without Bo and Barrero and they need, they need them back soon because there aren't another, another, there aren't a lot of other options. But the one thing I will say is the revs did have some options in the bench in this game, and I was surprised they waited. I mean, Rioni came on in what the the fifty fifth minute, um, but I was surprised they waited to the sixty eighth minute to put Boateng on, and then to like the eighty third minute to make additional subs. Um, I thought this game was there for the taking for the revs when it was 0-0 zero zero at halftime. I would have you know if Rioni could only go thirty five minutes, you put him in fifty five, but I put in Boateng with him because you saw right away that Boateng had that cross uh, to Rioni. Pretty quickly, that led to a dangerous chance. He couldn't put it on frame. was under pressure. But that's kind of what you expect from Boateng. And when you're making that sub, I don't know why you don't make both subs at the same time and give them the extra time out there because that really wasn't a very offensive-looking midfield.
1: Mm-mm, no. And and do you think that this was strategic by Bruce, that this game played out how he wanted, 0-0, and then maybe go for the goal at the end? Because we were kind of throwing out theories that maybe Bruce is trying to eat up some time early, keep it low-scoring. TFC played their Canadian Championship game midweek. Maybe having guys go 90 minutes, 90 minutes in the same week, maybe there's going to be a point where you can kind of hit them late in the game. It didn't really play out that way. If anything, TFC got more dangerous as the game went on. But uh, do you think that was a strategy? Because this lineup, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. The lineup to me, I-, I think you're right. I would have liked to have seen Rivera. I would have liked to have seen Tristan, I would have liked to have seen Boat Boateng. Tommy McNamara on the left wing. And the other thing, too, is if you put Tommy McNamara on the left wing, you have to put on Captoom. So to me, this struck me as Bruce is playing defensively, and maybe if this game was in April, I'd feel better about it. But in my mind, I think you need three-pointers at this stage. And I was a little disappointed with the way this game was approached.
0: I mean, honestly, I think both teams needed three points out of this game. I don't think either team is going to be happy with the draw because Toronto is so far back that they have a lot of ground to make up. But I I did kind of have the theory when I saw the lineup that, hey, they're – you know. Toronto's going to be a tired team, get 0-0 at halftime, make the subs at halftime or make the subs shortly after halftime and kind of go for it. But to me, the fact that they didn't put on Boateng until, uh, you know, the 68th minute makes me think that wasn't really a strategy. I-, I don't know why he waits so long to make that second sub, um, you know, make the sub the same time you bring putting Vioni on and you-, you still got the two substitution windows left to do whatever else you want instead of kind of forcing yourself, oh, now you put on Boateng. Now you only have one substitution window left to make three potential subs. Um, So I kind of thought that was a strategy, but then the fact you waited till the 68th minute to actually change up the midfield, uh, I don't don't know. I don't know. It's disappointing to me because that game they needed three points from, I think.
1: It's almost like they wanted to prevent Toronto from getting three points. And I, I think I said this to you last night in the press box. If this was a road game, this makes more sense to me. Like, I understood why they approached the Columbus game that way, but to me, you're at home. This is a team below you in the standings. I know TFC is, you know... (laughs) <laughs> they're a little dangerous and certainly they put on a dangerous display last week. But, uh, in, in my mind, I think this was a game where you had to come out and you had to hit hard and, and maybe it's because they were missing Bo and Barrera that they wanted to play a little bit more laid back, a little bit more conservative. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think at a certain point, you just got to go for it. And we're really approaching that territory. <laughs> I, I, I,
0: no, I agree. I just don't think the luxury of doing that. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. I mean, they're not, they're so far back. I mean, not, not that far back, but there's not that many games left. And I think it's not just about making the playoffs. It's about getting a seed where you get a home game, because I think if the revolution enter the playoffs as the, you know, the bottom seed, their chances of actually doing anything are extremely slim. Um, so I do think playoff positioning matters a lot. So, you know, any home game should be a going for three points, not going for the draw. And I do think it you know, almost looked like a scared lineup from Bruce because you saw what Toronto did last week. Like you mentioned, the, was it the 4-0 win? Um, a lot of firepower on paper with that team. I didn't think they looked that dangerous in this game. The Revs did a pretty good job of limiting them. Um, but it almost seemed like a scared lineup, like, hey, Bo's out, hey, Barrero's out. You know, Our best chance is getting a draw on this one, playing compact. Uh, I didn't like it. Um, but
1: <laughs> We did get a question last week, though, that said, like, how do we slow down this team? So, I mean, maybe this is just Bruce coming at it con- conservatively and coming away with the point, and I guess it worked. Right, well, well, one one way to slow down
0: the team is my takeaway, and, and that's that I think Petrovic actually might be a better shot stopper than Matt Turner, which is saying something crazy because Matt Turner is you know, one of the best shot stoppers in the history of MLS. But what we've seen from Petrovic so far is insane. And his goals added statistic, which is one that's been talked about a lot and people have used to show you know how good Matt Turner was because he's, I think he's got three of the top five seasons in MLS history or three of the top ten or something like that. Uh, Petrovic has played nine games, and his season is already in the top 15 uh, in the history of the statistics, which dates back to 2013, so that's just absolutely insane. And he's on pace to blow away you know, any anyone any season in the past of any goalkeeper. Um, and you know, he's 22 years old, so he's got a, he's got a lot of time to develop more. You know, Matt Turner's 28. Uh, and I think Petrovic, you already have a strong case to say he's a better shot stopper than Matt Turner. I don't say that lightly. Um, there are areas of his game he can work on for sure. I think his distribution still leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, we've seen some errors in decision-making. I don't think we saw really any in this game, but we have in the past. Uh, but th- to me, the, the performances that we've seen from him and the shot-stopping ability that we've seen from him in particular has been absolutely incredible. And you know, we've said it before, but what a find by the revolution to bring him in as Matt Turner's replacement, possibly bringing in a goalkeeper that, you know, I, you could say now could be better than Matt Turner. If not now, then you know a year or two from now, if he sticks around.
1: Yeah. And you have to think he's going to be cracking into the Serbian national team soon uh, with the highlight saves he's making in MLS. Uh, I think going to a bigger league and making these saves and becoming visibly very good. And it's not just in New England. Uh, I've started to notice accounts from of podcasts and reporters from outside New England saying, this guy's really good. I mean, you could make the case he's an elite MLS goalkeeper right now. Um, and I do think the distribution needs a little bit of work. I think communication needs a little bit of work. It English is, he's still learning English. Uh, I, I think that's kind of scary in a good way when you think about he's lacking communication in terms of a language barrier with his defenders beginning of the season next year. That's probably not going to be an issue. Uh, he, he's going to grow. He's going to have some better decision-making and maturity once he's adjusted to this league. And in terms of shot stopping insurance, uh, in terms of reflection, reflect, uh, re- reflexes, um, the tools are there. And, I think it was the after the penalty kick save, uh, I think I turned to you and I said, so we have this guy for what, two more years? And then he sold for 10, 10 12 million? I, I mean, uh, a phenomenal player and the, the ceiling is unbelievable here. I, I, I feel like we have replaced Matt Turner. I don't want to say like for like. It's, it's hard making a Matt Turner comparison right away. We're talking about last year's MLS Goalkeeper of the Year, but um, the tools are there uh, and, and we've really been spoiled with some incredible goalkeeping. And, that, and it's also worth pointing out I understand there's some luck involved in penalty kicks, but that was not a weak penalty kick. That was a very nicely taken penalty kick, and Petrovic had that corner covered. So, um, yeah, we we could do a full 30 minutes about how awesome this guy is, but um, yeah. What a, what a find by the reps.
0: Yeah, and it was, was insignia taking the penalty kick, too. This is an experienced Serie A player that plays on the Italian national team. And you know, some goalkeepers and, and that shoes might be intimidated to be in that situation. Like, here I am going up against one of the, arguably the top player in the league, or one of the top players in the league, uh, top paid player in the league. You know, that, that could be a pretty intimidating situation to be in. And he stepped right up and made a good save. It wasn't a, it wasn't a bad penalty. I mean, it wasn't the best penalty in the world, but it was well placed. Um, it was a you know, lower corner. So it's just incredible what we've seen this guy and i think you constantly have to remind yourself that he's just 22 years old he could have 16 plus more years as a pro he's just you know not in his not in his prime for a goalkeeper yet several several years away from that um i thought when the revs were signing him that he was you know going to be a promising project but it, there's already a case that he's one of the top goalkeepers in the league um and you know, he keeps playing like this. You could say he's the top goalkeeper in the league, which is just absolutely crazy, uh, to go from replacing a fantastic goalkeeper, Matt Turner, that was the top goalkeeper in the league, you know, arguably with Andre Blake, um, to having another guy that's right there at that same level and six years younger. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, nuts.
1: It's absolutely incredible. So, I, again, I could go on forever. So,
0: But, but I, I do think you're right that, you know two years from now he might not be two years two
1: years then top five league and uh the revs will be certainly rich and then they go and they find the next you know eastern european phenom to replace him
0: well and a goalkeeper at his age too is going to get you a lot more money than matt absolutely. so that'll that'll be uh something to watch
1: (laughs) i'm not joking when i say that I, i call it right now cursed revs if you're listening clip this and save this for later petrovic is going to be the first eight figure transfer for the revs, the first 10 plus million transfer for the revolution. And I'm going to guess it's going to happen in 2024, 2025. I mean, the ceiling is just unbelievable and and the higher leagues are going to take notice.
0: Uh, A couple quick, topics i want to bring up before we get to questions um we mentioned legit and mcnamara on the wings it seemed like a defensive formation Rennox got the start up top what did you think of his performance obviously not a lot of bruce was asked after the game what what you know what has Rennick shown you to get the start and he basically said he's worked hard and we didn't have any other options so it wasn't the most glowing report for for why he was starting i mean anyone paying attention kind of knew that there weren't any other options but what, what did you think of his performance
1: look god bless justin renick's um uh, I really like Justin Rennicks. He's not going to be a striker for the Revs. I, th- I He's never going to start. Um, more of the same. We kind of talked about his numbers last week and his touches. And 54 minutes here this week, he had 10 touches. That's kind of what we've seen from him this season. It was more of what we've seen. He had 67% pass accuracy, 10 touches. He hustles. He presses. He can run. Um, not the fastest in the world, but he can run. He shows a lot of heart. He shows a lot of hustle. I think he's a good player that I just don't think is the right person for, especially a one striker formation with the revs. Um, He's just not physical in the box. He doesn't win too many duels. Um, Just more of kind of what we said last week where to the point where I wonder if he's a winger, the point where I wonder if you're just better suited having him kind of run up and down the wings and kind of center the ball, maybe develop his crossing a little bit. Um, But in terms of being a forward, making the right run, getting behind the defense, getting some shots. Um, We're just not seeing it. So I like Justin Reddix. Again, I still wonder if he's going to be around next year. I wonder what they do if he's out of contract or they have a option. every Now and then I see an account say Justin Reddix has value and other teams really like him. And it's at the point where, if that's true, I think Justin Reddix should be moved. Not as a, I hate Justin Reddix and he's the worst player in the world, but kind of in the same way of Diego Fagundes where I think he can be unlocked somewhere else and I hope he develops and finds his role and finds his minutes. And I I just don't think it's going to be here, especially with Frioni coming in as a striker. You have Bo. Josie's going to be coming back uh, at the end of this year, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, And, you know, there are some Revs 2 players like Marcos Diaz that are really impressing down there. And and Renex just seems like a bit of an odd man out guy. So I I think it's good we saw a little bit more of him. We we talked about last week how he was, I don't want to say in the doghouse, but seemed to be not Bruce's favorite selection, and uh, after, after his four or five game stint earlier this year, and I think we just saw more of what we saw earlier this year, and I, I think that's it.
0: I I agree with everything you said, and I, there's no real standout quality to Justin Renex as a striker. He works hard, and I think he's good for the press, but you know. I, I think from what we've seen from him, he's kind of the poacher that puts away a rebound. Um, He's not necessarily the guy that wins the header. He's not necessarily the guy that's going to take a long-range blast to score. He's not necessarily the guy that's going to drill by somebody. He's just a very hard worker, and I don't mind that as kind of the fourth striker on your roster, especially as a homegrown guy that's you know a supplemental roster spot, not counting against anything. Um, But I don't think you're going to win or you're going to score many goals if he's kind of your number nine in a one striker formation and maybe he works better as a second striker or maybe he works better as a winger um but i think you know he's 23 years old now and the fact that the revolution haven't given him a lot of minutes in the past probably didn't help his development and i think part of that what we're seeing now is just the fact that you know he's 23 he should have developed more by now and the revolution haven't really given him those opportunities to do so um so I don't know. I, I, I'm with you that next – I don't know if he'll be back on the team next year. Um, but if he is, I think it needs to be as kind of your your second option off the bench for strikers, not as your first option and not as a guy that's really ever starting any games except maybe the Open Cup. Yeah. Um, but –
1: I do want to touch on some listener questions. I'm just going to skip ahead because we're kind of hitting them on him right now. Hitting on them right now. Uh, James Downing said, any thoughts on Rennicks? We already kind of gave our thoughts on Rennicks. But Tyler O'Brien said, what's the role of Rennicks moving forward? The press is so much better when he's on the field. But at the same time, he's really not a goal scorer at this stage of his career. So that kind of mimics what you said there, Sean, where, yeah, I, I wonder if it's better to try him out on the wing. And I mean, I'd rather see Justin Renick on the wing probably than Tommy McNamara. So, uh, you know, I, I I wonder if you can maybe redevelop him and find a different role, um, or or maybe play him as a second striker slash winger. And I don't know, maybe uh, I don't know, maybe in the mold of a Teal Bunbury type, or uh, you know, and kind of make him a utility forward guy where you could play him in multiple spots. But um, certainly as a single striker, I. Don't know if I ever want to see that again.
0: I mean, if you're winning a game late and you want someone to run around and put pressure on the defense, I don't mind, I don't mind him in that role. you would be
1: a good late late sub like, like or something Teal, like, like that. Like yeah. was, you're right. Yeah, a late sub to kind of put pressure. Yeah, sure, sure. But I don't know. If, if another team is interested in him and, and thinks that they can really kind of crack that up and, and rejuvenate his career, I, I think if you're the Revs, you'd be doing right by him by sending him to that team. Because uh, I, I just don't know if Bruce values him or what, what's going on with him, but I'm just underwhelmed over and over again.
0: Well, we do have some other topics I want to get to, but I think they're covered by our listener questions. So I think we'll go to listener questions and, and do it that way, um, as you mentioned with the Renex one. Uh, before we do, though, I do want to take a quick minute to talk about the sponsor of this podcast, Galasho Kits. Galasho Kits is the go-to place to bring unique vintage jerseys to your home. The passion for the beautiful game doesn't have borders, and neither does the selection. And if you head to galakokits.com today, you can get 15% off your order using the code REVSRECAP. That's Revs Recap at checkout for 15% off your order at galakokits.com. If you're like me and are starting to get excited about the upcoming World Cup in December, uh, minus the fact that it's in Qatar, um, I'm personally getting excited. There are a ton of awesome vintage U.S. men's national team kits available right now. I've seen some potential mock-ups of the kit in uh, this year for the World Cup, and it doesn't look too exciting. So you might want to get one of the old ones that are better at Galaco Kits and save 15% with the code REVSCUKAP. Good opportunity. Don't miss it. Um, lots of questions. Uh, first one from Eric. He wants to know our early takeaways on... Yakumo Veroni. He said he doesn't seem quite as solid on the ball as Adam Buxa, but definitely feels more explosive getting onto crosses. Doesn't want to judge him too harshly on the flub chance of the death, but that would have been a transcendent moment.
1: Yeah, pretty well said. I don't know how much more I can add to it. Um, again, we're, we're so far we got about, what, 70 minutes across two appearances where, one, where the Revs really weren't intending on scoring too, too much in Columbus and one in this Toronto game where Toronto seemed to be kind of punching back and kind of gaining possession. So um, we did have that one chance with Frioni, which I think he wishes he had that one back. He certainly seemed like he wanted it back in the presser. And he, I, I think he wanted to make a really good first impression. You know, we, we sat in that, that press bo- the, the, the press conference after the game and he seems really excited to be in America and playing in MLS and, you know, we talk about people that come over and treat this as kind of a retirement league or just a paycheck. And um, he, his comments yesterday, at one point he called it a beautiful league. Uh, I think he really is looking forward to the challenge of playing in Major League Soccer. And I think he really wanted to have made a, a good impression in his home debut. Um, I, I think he really, really appreciated the, the fans last night. And um, so, I, yeah, getting back to my early takeaways on him. I agree with kind of everything he said here. I don't think he's going to be as great in the air, but he seems to be already a little bit more polished in terms of making run runs, um, having a nose for where the ball is going to be. And I think that's a trade-off I think I like compared to Buxa. Um Might take a little bit to get accustomed to the guys around him, especially with Barrero and Bo out. Uh, I think, you know, we'll look a little bit different with those two guys on, but um, overall I'm, I'm encouraged from what we're seeing. Uh, but again, I'd feel a lot better if he finished that chance.
0: Yeah, I mean we're used to the Revolution creating a lot more chances than they have been the past two games. So he hasn't had too much of an opportunity. So the, you really highlight the one opportunity he did have uh, because he's he's not getting that many. Um, I, I agree with everything you said. I think that you know he's going to be a very good player for the Revolution. It's too early to take too much away from his play so far. I did appreciate his comments after the match. He was also very friendly to the media, which is something that we always appreciate. Um, seems like a nice guy, but you know, it's too early to make too many judgment calls. But I think the early signs are good, and we got to remember that Adam Buxa was not Adam Buxa when he first came to the refs. So it took him a little while to adjust and then become the player that he was. Um, I'm hopeful that Rioni doesn't take quite as long to adjust as Buxa did, um, but you know, early signs look good. It would have been nice to see him put that chance away, but he's again, he's it's basically the second like a preseason form so uh, it's i don't know it's hard for me to take too much away but i like the early signs i like i like his size i like the runs he's making and i think the, the finishing touch will will come um you don't score as many goals as you did in the austrian league last year if you can't finish so I, I'm, I'm excited to see what he has to bring but it's it's definitely too early to to make too much of a judgment call
1: yeah, 12 touches in about 45 minutes it's really hard to get a good sample from that but in terms of again if we're looking at tools i i think the tools are there and i'm encouraged
0: yeah, absolutely. And even just being like in that spot where you know Boateng's cross went, he was. They were they were on the same page there with that, even right. though we you know it was well defended. Uh, he couldn't get it on frame, but it, it's, the the early signs are there. Um, one guy I did want to talk about that we got a lot of questions about too was Wilfred Captoom, who we've mentioned on the podcast was MIA the past two weeks before this, where he wasn't even in the game day squad. He went from starting to the revs to not making the game day squad. Was never on the injury report. Never heard anything about him being injured, but. He went back to starting in this game, which I assume he was injured the past couple weeks, right? Like, why Why else was he from starting to not in the squad to starting again, right, if, if he wasn't injured? What do you make out of that? And uh, I, guess, I guess I'll ask you that question before I jump into all the comments.
1: <laughs> I would assume it's an injury that just the injury report is not picking up on because obviously the injury report is more or less useless. So – I think if we're speculating and we're making our best guess, sure. If I want to keep peddling this conspiracy theory that he has a transfer maybe lined up and maybe he's looking to move back to Europe, maybe that fell through. I don't think that's true, though. Uh, and I, I. It's very bizarre for him to not start or not be in the bench and then go back to starting when you had other options. As I say, you could put T-Mac in the midfield and go with Rivera or Botang or... Tristusin on the left wing, and instead you put Captoom in here? Um, I don't know. I, I, it's a real mystery to me, just reading the tea leaves of what's going on here. The only thing that really makes sense to me is he had a slight injury, and just for whatever reason the Revs left it off the injury report, which, again, I don't know why they would do that. I don't know if they feel it gives them an advantage, but th- that's the only thing in my mind that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I really don't think anyone's adjusting their game plan too much on whether or not Captoom <laughs> is playing, so I don't, know, I don't know what you gain by not listing that. Um, but a couple of comments we got on him. Well, Ryan Duplicy had a, a few comments. We'll just focus on the Captoom one, but he said, Petrovic owned this game. Vrioni is nice. was looking far superior to Altidore, at the pretty low bar. Uh, and they said, Captoom looked good. And it was nice to see Renick start. Uh, so he had positive thoughts about Kap-tum. Uh Botswana president, apparently have some royalty that listens to our podcast. Um, he says, when are we going to talk about the weaknesses of Captoom?" I don't remember seeing him con- completing a pass. Um, and then Tyler O'Brien responded that actually I thought it was his best game as a rev. So we got some very differing opinions um, on Captoon's performance in this one.
1: What, what did you think of Captoon's performance in this one? First off, have we never talked about the weaknesses of Captoon before? I feel like at some point we've talked about that, but maybe we haven't. Um, but I mean, we can talk about it here. Uh, I didn't think he was very impactful yesterday. He actually was 82% passing yesterday, which is about 37 37 for 45 overall. Um, But a lot of those were short passes. I think he was 1 for 3 on long balls, no key passes, 0 for 1 on through balls. He, he seems to have some good vision. There was one long ball. Uh, it was low and, and down the right side for Brandon By that. I think he, he was just a little too far into space. Um, and I do remember, too, in the second half, he had a, a bit of a through ball that just went right to a defender. He seems to have some vision for his long through balls, but just not very accurate. Um, there were also a couple of moments here that were a little... Shaky for uh, Wilfred Captoom. In the 58th minute, we haven't talked about the rocket that hit off the post. I think everyone's going to focus on the p- the belly kick. But in the 58th minute, Captoom um, kind of just falls down. I think they were looking for a foul call. They didn't get it. It led to a TFC chance, a, a rocket from outside the box that rattled off of the post. Um, there was another play about 10 minutes later where Wil- Wilfred Captoom had the ball uh, and he's just pickpocketed from behind. He, he doesn't realize a, a TFC player is coming behind him. So uh, there were some, uh, and then there was another play in the first half where uh, that. That led to the one-on-one chance uh, with Petrovic that was saved. Where there's a through ball, I think Cap, Cap thinks Kessler is behind him, but Cap er, but Kessler is moving a little bit more into the center. Uh, I could chalk that up to miscommunication, but still, Captoom not tracking uh, his man. I know there was a, an instant earlier this season there where Andrew Farrell um, committed a foul in the box uh, that led to a penalty kick, where Captoom just kind of let him go and figured the defense would get it. So, um, kind of one of those things where I'm not sure what Captoom does really well. And he doesn't bring enough explosiveness to really earn a starting spot for me. But obviously Bruce seems to see something in him. So um, in terms of his weaknesses, I just think he's doesn't have many qualities. I know we've had one or two games where Captoom's had a 90% pass accuracy and he doesn't screw up. And you just plug him in and he moves the ball side to side and he looks really well. And last night uh, he was fine, but nothing explosive and had some moments that could have been costly for the team. So... Uh, this one goes down as negative in my book for Captoom uh, overall.
0: I agree with you. And when we talk about his good passing games too, he was 82.2% passing accuracy, which is, isn't bad on its own, but it was the, the weakest passing accuracy of anyone in the Reds midfield. Uh, Polster was 90.6%. LeJet was 90.6%. Both other, um, I think Carly's heel was 80-something, which is higher. He was Carly's heel was um, 83.1%, so slightly higher. McNamara, 88.5%. So n- 82.2%. Whatever percent 82.2 percent for Captoom is is good but it was the weakest of the midfielders and i don't think he was trying too many crazy passes the only thing i'll give him credit for is there were a few times in this game where you know the revs were in transition and i thought he smartly kind of played it quickly kept the ball moving where sometimes i think you you get frustrated with some revolution midfielders that play it too slow i did see a few times in the attack where he kind of kept the ball moving and was smart about kind of playing it on and keeping the attack flowing but defensively i noticed the same things you did the times were was picked off the times where you know he had an opportunity to stop a play and didn't. And he just overall kind of seems weak for the defensive midfield spot where, you know, he gets a little bit of pressure on him and he turns the ball over too easily. Um, not great at holding up the ball under pressure. And that's not great for a defensive midfielder or a guy that's, you know, kind of trying to dribble it out of a, a defensive third. So I, I thought it was a poor performance from him. Um, if you're focusing on a few times in the attack where he kind of kept the ball moving and played it fast, maybe that's the, the highlights you saw from him, but I, I don't know. I didn't think it was a good performance from him. Um, um, again, I think he's proven himself to be a serviceable player for the Revolution. Where if he's in your rotation, um, getting spot starts, it's not going to kill you. Um, which is more than I thought about him, you know, last year. Uh, but for you know, close to six hundred thousand guaranteed comp this season, that's that's not going to cut it. So I, I don't expect him to be part of the Revolution next year, and I don't think this was a particularly good performance from him. I, I
1: agree. I agree. With everything he said. There are moments where he does a nice dribble or a nice carry or gets around someone. You're like, ooh. This might be something. Um, but I feel like we have like maybe one of those moments a game. Like we have little bits that if you're not paying attention, you miss the Captoom highlight. And um, yeah, I-, I agree with everything he said. I-, I don't think he's strong enough to be a defensive midfielder. I don't think he's someone that is able to generate chances. He, he kind of does the basics. And sometimes he does the basics really reliably well. And sometimes not. That- that's it. That's what Cap miss. is.
0: Uh, Porter also wanted to ask about Captain, but he had other questions too, so I didn't focus on that one. Um, he wanted to know about T-Mac starting at left wing, and he said it's more like <laughs> laughing my A off when Tristison looked good instead. Um, and then thoughts of Legette at box-to-box over right wing. So I think he's not happy with uh, Tommy McNamara and like Tristison there instead, and then wanted to know about Legette box-to-box. But Tristan wasn't really playing as a winger was he or because Boateng well I guess he was when he came in late but
1: yeah at at times earlier in the first half there was a movement chart I have a movement chart in front of me where he's kind of playing in between Rennicks and Jawan Jones who's the farthest player over to the left but in the first half him and Rennicks were almost next to each other if you looked at a, 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 a movement chart early in the first half McNamara and Rennicks almost were next to each other when they were in the offensive third and McNamara was almost Playing as a second striker, if if Leggett was back, if Leggett was up, he kind of pinched back a little bit more into the midfield. But he was playing very centrally, uh, and I, I think this was just a matter of playing a little bit narrow. Um, Leggett was out on the right wing a little bit more, I would say, than than Tommy McNamara. I really don't mind him as a winger overall, um, especially too if you're having if the intention is to have Brandon By kind of do an overlapping run and you move Leggett in the middle when when By catches up, um, but. I think long term, when Barrero and Bo are back, I think we're gonna see Legette kind of move back and pair with Polster. I think that's where I would play him personally. I think that Legette moving out to right wing is just a matter of the personnel involved in this game.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I mean with Barrero I I don't think that much of an option other than playing Legette um at right wing. I this is for Tommy Mack, again, we talked about that earlier. I don't I don't I don't love that defensive posture that the revolution took, even though as you pointed out, I guess it is kind of weird to say defensive posture when there were times when Tommy McNamara was the furthest guy forward. Uh, the whole formation for the Revolution, I think we we'll both talked about during the game, where you know, there was times where LeJet and McNamara were both on the right wing together, um, and there was nobody on the left wing. It was very, I mean, we've heard Bruce Arena kind of crap on the concept of formations in the past. They don't really matter. And this, this game, the way the Revolution played, at times it kind of seemed like that um but I, I mean I don't like Tommy McNamara as a winger I think he's a, a you know a fine central midfielder and you know if he's going to be playing um I've I, talked about this before I don't want him to be the starter every game at central midfield but I think he's a good rotational guy a good veteran depth piece um and a good central midfielder I don't like seeing him on the wing I, I'd rather see Boateng get more minutes I'd rather see Tristan get more minutes I, I don't think Tristan is really a winger either uh, I think he's proven to be better centrally generally but Um, So, yeah, I think we're all on the same page that Tommy McNamara should not be starting on the wing. um, And that legit is probably the best option you have when Barrera is out. Um, I would rather see him centrally. I think he would rather play centrally. um, But he has seen plenty of time on the wings in his career. Part of his appeal is that he's a relatively versatile guy in midfield. um, And I I don't mind him playing out there. And I think he has his good moments when he does.
1: I mean, I think this game... T-Mac and Leggett, we can kind of say the same things where they're flexible enough that you can put them on the wings and they can kind of pinch narrow and play in centrally if you need them to and pack it in. Or they can kind of exploit into space if you need them to kind of run to the corners. Um, more so Legette and than McNamara in my mind. Um, but um, yeah, I, the one thing with T-Mac, though, that that really drives me nuts is, again, and, and Porter mentions Tristison, I feel like Tristison has been fine this year. Not saying he's an all world player or he's an MLS All Star, but this seemed like a game where you could have put him out where T Mac started. And if you want to keep T Mac in the lineup, you can just pair pair him with Polster like you've been doing all season. It's almost like they did this to put Captoo in, and maybe Bruce just likes Captoo more than us, even though Captoom has been missing two weeks, which is again mystery. But um, yeah, I think more McNamara on the left wing just kind of means it opened up a hole in the central midfield when I feel like it would have just been easier to put. Tristus in there and maybe I just don't understand why he would do that
0: well and you put Tristan there too and he, I think he's a guy that you know we talked about Rennix and what he offers I think Tristison might have complimented Rennix more in that he's a guy that can kind of cut inside and get a shot off um, and you could have played you know, Tristison up until you brought Rioni on and then put Boateng on and then Boot compliments Rioni because he's a guy that can get down the wing and put crosses and you kind of had that uh, I mean the option to kind of the the left wing by committee approach where you could put one guy in to compliment Rennix and then one guy in to, to compliment um, Rioni, and I just, I don't think that T-Mac really compliments anybody. I'm not, I am not I don't think he played terribly. I just don't, I mean, you're not getting a lot offensively from T-Mac, and you mentioned kind of comparing him with lejet Lejet has the ability to kind of beat guys in the dribble sometimes. He can play pretty fast. He's got a little bit of speed to him, um, so you know, I, I, I think Leggett I don't mind as you said, and T-Mac, I, I just I don't know. There's, the Revs have enough depth on the bench where they shouldn't need to play T-Mac on the wing, but
1: mm-hmm. Agreed 100%. <laughs> Yep. Uh,
0: Traeger Dorati wants to know, if we sign another center back, how do you feel about trying to play a 3-5-2 formation? I feel like one more center back gives us enough depth to play consistently. I also feel like we've been playing the 3-5-2 this season. It has gone well. Uh, one, my point of clarification here is I feel like when people say the 3-5-2, they're talking about By and Jones being the wingers in that situation, I assume, which is you could also call it a 5-3-2. But uh, what do you feel about kind of that formation?
1: Uh, well, first off, again, I just want to remind everyone that, as Bruce Arena would tell you, that the formations are just a starting point and everyone kind of moves everywhere, so it doesn't really matter. So this question is pretty irrelevant to Bruce Arena. To us, though, I'll answer this just for the hell of it. Um, I think right now changing formations, changing to a three-man backline might add a little more chaos at this point in the season. Um, maybe if this was in April, I think I'd be a little bit more open to it. I wouldn't totally hate it, but I think, too, if you bring in a center back, you are trying to strengthen that position there. So if you're adding in a center back, then you're still going to be keeping in Farrell or Kessler, who we've been talking about. Probably Farrell is the guy we would likely replace or kind of rotate in and out. Um, So if you you bring in a center back, I mean, you could do it right now with Bell, Kessler, and Farrell. So I think bringing in a center back it's kind of the whole reason you'd bring in a center back is to so – so you wouldn't have to do a 3-5-2 formation. Um, but regardless, the, the other thing I, I have with it is, OK, so you bring in center back, Kessler, Farrell. You have Byron Jones on the wings. So your central midfield is Polster, Heel Tristesen, and then Vrioni Br- and Bo up top. Where's Barrero? So I think there's a bit of – shuffling around you'd have to do of then who suddenly is your odd man out because now you're taking off a Dylan Barrero or a Gustavo Bo maybe because injuries don't have that problem but you might hypothetically be taking off Dylan Barrero, DeWan Jones you know maybe you move Jones to the right you take off Brandon Bay or maybe you move Brandon by in the three-man back line you know there's there's a number of questions and shuffling around people and I think at this point in the season you might just be adding to your list of problems than resolving a problem
0: I completely agree with everything you said. My biggest issue is the Barrero issue is that Barrero doesn't fit really in that formation. And if Barrero is going to be out long term, it sounds like it's coming back next week. But if there was going to be a long term Barrero injury, I wouldn't mind them experimenting with this because playing with wingers right now for the reasons we just talked about, they don't have that many great options at winger if Barrero is out and maybe you're better off. Playing a five-three-two or a three-five-two with Byun and, and Jones providing that with, instead of trying to force Tommy Mack to play on the wing, um, if you're not confident in you know Tristison playing out wide or in Boateng playing for more than twenty-two minutes or whatever it was in this game, um, so if, if you told me that Barrera was going to be out the rest of the season and the Revs weren't bringing another any other wingers, I would be on board with this. But I think offensively, I think defensively, we've seen the Revolution play really well the past couple games. Well. Maybe really well as an exaggeration, but, but better, <laughs> better the past two games. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, when those guys build the chemistry playing more, when Petrovic builds the chemistry playing more, that that'll work out. And I don't think you want to hurt the offense by kind of taking out a role for Barrero when he is healthy. Um, so for me, unless Barrero is, unless, you know, Barrero is not coming back this season at some point, I, I don't, I don't like that idea.
1: The, I, I agree hundred percent. If Barrero's out, I think it's a different conversation for me. The other thing too, the other person, this might be a hot take if matt polster gets hurt and he's out the rest of the season hypothetically let's say let's say polster is out when the revs go up in offense and especially if both jones and by push up we sometimes see polster push back in between the center backs to kind of help swing the ball around kind of add that extra layer of defense he kind of commits defensively when the wing backs push up so in a weird way you kind of have a 3-5-2 there if polster's out I'm not so sure if I want Tommy McNamara or Captoon being that extra, quote unquote, you know, flex center back guy that's kind of pinching in between Kessler and Farrell. So maybe if Polster is out and you don't feel confident enough in a defensive midfielder adding on to his defensive responsibilities and kind of being a part of that makeshift backline, maybe you go to a 3-5-2 and kind of just go with some offensive midfield, maybe Leggett, Heal and I don't know, whoever. Um, Barrero. I, I don't know. who I don't know. Who, but um, Uh But um, yeah, in, in terms of the personnel they have now, unless there's an injury, I think I'd like to stick with it as is and maybe try out the three-five-two next year if something happens.
0: Yeah, I'm completely on board with all of that. Um, Josh Nye wants to know your panic meter update. We
1: talked about the panic meter in the past. Where, where are you now? <laughs> so it didn't it didn't go up too much. But I do think last week I said that they need 1.5 points per game and we got one today. So it's a bad week. I would say, I think last week we were at 8.5 or maybe 8. So if we were at 8.5 last week, we're getting close. I'm going to move it to like an 8.75. So we went up. 25 basis points, not not a crazy rate hike. I'm not the Fed, but just a very small blip, moving it up 25 basis points to 8.75. Um, this would have gone up pretty severely if this was the loss, though. I'll say that, Sean.
0: I think what also inches your panic meter up a little bit is the fact that the transfer window closes on August 4th, and we haven't seen a move yet. Um, with that said, it wouldn't surprise me if the Revolution sign a free agent where the transfer window is irrelevant, and it's more the roster freeze deadline, which is early September, I think. But I think that the combination of... Dropping points at home to a team below you in the standings and that were inching towards the transfer window and there hasn't been a move would make your panic meter go up a little bit.
1: August 5th, we're going to wake up and everyone on Revs Twitter is going to be pleased for the love of God, get John Brooks on the phone. <laughs> How could we do another summer window of no uh, additions in the trade market? Um, a- apparently, apparently there uh, some moves have been teased on Rev's Twitter. Uh, I I won't say by who because there haven't been any official reports, but apparently a defender has been teased uh, by someone. And I'll give them credit if that comes true. Uh, But it might be trolling, so I'm not so sure. But um, I would imagine something's going to happen this week. If not, we'll move that panic meter up to a nine.
0: Oh, yeah. If if nothing happens before the transfer window, my my panic meter is definitely going up. You're hitting the button. I'm I'm about to hit. Panic button hit. About to hit. Okay. (laughs) That combined with not getting three points against Orlando – uh, that would be hitting the panic button. Yes, I, would, I agree I there. Say. I agree there. Yeah, it's. I mean, time. There's not. There's, it's a long season, but there's only so so much time to figure things out. Um, we got a lot of questions about the referee. I've been I've been holding off on them, but uh, unsurprisingly, after this game with a controversial penalty kick, everyone wants to talk about the referee. Matt Forrester says, "What has to be done." Uh, to the for the standard of refereeing to improve an MLS. Some very questionable decisions from a weak referee. He should have had Carly's heel on the book for descent on at least three occasions. That was not where I was expecting that to go, although I kind of agree with the the comment that there's been a lot of times this season where Carly still caught, probably could have gotten a yellow car for descent. We've talked about this in past episodes. But not not where I was expecting the referee complaints to go. Uh, Swerve R.I. says once again the ref was the biggest load of crap and a good reason why the Revs had a hard time. They played great Nonetheless, uh, big ups to our goalkeeper. Question, though, was the ref part of our downfall or just a small nuisance? Um, Macho says there has to be an anti-revs agenda at pro. And Randy LH said how many of us would have to sign a petition to get this ref fired for it to have an effect? (laughs) 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 I'll let you take that wherever you want.
1: (laughs) Well, one more thing, too. We were watching Brandon by. Scream at the referee. I think it was Brandon By. Scream at the referee after the whistle. And we are like, boy, he, he, he might get a red card here. I mean, he seemed very, very angry. Um, refereeing was bad. Uh, not a whole lot more I can add on to this. I personally, well, let's go here first. Was it a, was it a penalty kick? I think you're on the fence. I'm pretty solidly it was not a penalty kick. So I've watched it a
0: lot of times, and I think if Poster gets the ball first, it's not a penalty kick. And I'm like 95% sure Poster got the ball first the more I watch it. But I'm not 100% sure, so I can almost see why if he called that in real time, you know, it wasn't clear and obvious. But that said, a lot of other people, including Brad and Charlie, and I think just about everyone else was 100% sure. So maybe I just haven't watched it closely enough. Um, but there was there's a little bit of hesitation there. Um, where it looked to me like Matt Polster stepped in front of the guy as he was taking the, taking the kick. And if Polster didn't get to the ball, then I do think he was obstructing him. But I, I, I'm 95% sure he did, in which case it wasn't a penalty. I don't think it was a penalty, um, but I can almost justify why if you called it in real time on VAR, you weren't 100% clear enough to overturn it. But I, I think I'm kind of alone on that one.
1: So, so, wait, so Brad and Charlie thought it wasn't a penalty kick. Yes, yeah, they're okay, both yeah. convinced. Okay. Like 100% it wasn't. Yeah. So. I, I've watched it a few times. It's an interesting play, and I don't know if I've ever seen it exactly fall in this line before. I understand why the referee makes that call in real time with what he sees. It makes sense. Also, one thing I, we talked about earlier today um, is I wonder what the percentage of calls that go to VAR that don't get overturned is, because that's a pretty severe... The VAR is trying to overrule the ref, and the ref upholds his decision. Um, In, in my mind, you have to be really sure of that call, or I, I don't know. In my mind, it's not a penalty kick. I think if Polster gets the ball, there's not even a question because he's playing the ball and then someone kicks him in the leg. I do understand the argument that if, you're, if you can't block a shot, you prevent an offensive player from shooting, that's a foul and that's a penalty. And I understand the argument that Polster putting his leg between the ball and where he's kicking is obstructing the shot. I don't think you can say that was his intent remotely close. Like that was not Polster's intent, and he's very close to the ball, as you said. It's it's not clear to me if he touched the ball or not. But even if he doesn't touch the ball, Polster, in my mind, is making a play at the ball, and it's I'm not a, I'm not a refereeing expert, but I was very surprised when it came back as a penalty kick, and it didn't matter in the end. Um, I can see the argument from Toronto fans or or people that thought it was a penalty kick. But I was surprised that when the referee got a better look at it and got a view from all angles that he still held that call that, that to me struck me as a referee, maybe being a little stubborn in his decision-making and, and, I don't know. Also, I don't know if you could see it at home. Michael Bradley, very close to the referee, uh, basically stalking the referee right behind him while he was uh, in VAR. He was standing along the sideline uh, watching the referee from about 10 feet away. Super creepy, Michael Bradley. I-,
0: I thought Michael Bradley should have gotten the yellow card. We're talking about yellow cards for dissent and stuff. When you're when
1: you're over kind of looking at the-, the referee's shoulder, when he's looking at VAR. <laughs> I-, I don't know what he thought he was doing. I don't think the referee knew he was there until he turned around. But, um, yeah, Michael Bradley, uh, give him some space, man. That was kind of weird.
0: <laughs> it was. It was a bit a bit unusual. One um, one 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 quick comment though. I, I will say that um, I, you know, if you've listened to me I'm not the biggest fan of the Apple TV deal but I feel like if I was seeing that in 1080 which Apple TV is promising I probably would be been 100% convinced it wasn't half <laughs> okay instead of the 95% convinced cuz it was on crappy 720 or whatever 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 the broadcast quality is now.
1: Yes. No, agree agree 100%. Um in terms of these these questions though on the refereeing Um, in terms of what needs to be done for the standard of refereeing to improve in MLS, how many people need to sign a petition? Uh, I I, I don't know. I I feel like ever since we've started this podcast, there's half a dozen games where the refereeing is just below par to an insane degree. Um, I don't know if it'll ever change. I mean, I don't know if more resources need to be put into MLS or bigger training. And maybe that's, you know, maybe MLS kind of puts more money to it, but it seems like something that pro isn't that concerned with. And, I don't know. It's very frustrating. I I don't think it impacted the scoreline. I think it was a fair result. And Bruce Arena said it was a fair result after the game. But overall, I think this is just the standard of refereeing that we're going to be dealing with in Major League Soccer throughout my lifetime.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think... I don't think it affected the result because the penalty kick was saved. If the penalty kick wasn't saved, we're talking about a different story. And and to some extent, when a penalty kick is saved, I thought it kind of swings the momentum a bit. I thought the revs actually got kind of a boost from that. Now, I'm, I'm not going to credit the referee for for a bad PK call that you know was saved, but I, I do think that to some extent, the revs did get a little bit of a boost from that and it kind of sparked them to life with Petrovic kind of changing the momentum with that save. Um, so I don't think the result was impacted because Petrovic is just that good. Um, you know, as for improving referees, I think you know. MLS started – I believe MLS started having full-time referees several years ago, but they're not all full-time. And I think the more full-time officials you can have, the better it is for the standard of quality in MLS. But I don't think there's any you know fix that's going to fix this overnight. Um, you got to make being an MLS referee more appealing to improve the standard of quality. And I don't really know how you do that. Um, making them all full-time is part of that um but it's being a soccer referee I, I was a soccer referee for a very short period it is not at least to me it was not enjoyable so y- you got to find the certain personalities to do that job
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying curtis burke mls referee make it happen <laughs> it's also worth pointing out a lot of people gave that referee i, I don't have his name for me a lot of people gave the head referee a lot of crap assistant referees also did not shine themselves in glory because there are a few points at the media game from the press box where we're way up there where a ball goes out and it clearly hits off of someone very obviously and I'm not talking big calls they were very small I mean there was one point where Brandon by I think the fort (laughs) lost their mind because it was a clear corner kick um, and the referee called it the other way I mean the assistants are supposed to be on that too so really every referee on the field um, I, I thought was pretty poor overall very very small calls were just very bad
0: yeah and the, the biggest call went against the revs but there were call, bad calls both ways there was a time where i think bradley or somebody stole the ball from the jet and the jet just like tripped and, and yeah. it could have been a nice counter attack for toronto uh and they called the foul so i mean the revs got bailed out there but I, obviously the penalty kick is the worst call but um it was just bad overall and, and and both directions uh we did have randy lh wanted to ask about the back line he said it seemed a lot better tonight and petro's a rock star but thoughts on the anemic attack <laughs>
1: We kind of covered this a little bit already. Um, A lot of that, I think, is just the personnel that was sent out there that just isn't going to work against good teams and is not going to give you three points. Very frustrating to be at the spot in the table and go out and have back-to-back games with less than one expected goal. Um, I I hope this is the last game this season where we have less than one expected goal. And it's really annoying to see, you know, a team that I think we should always be kind of comparing ourselves to the Philadelphia Union, where they're banging in, what, eighteen goals in the month of July and they're winning five nothing and seven nothing and we're over and they're buying Julian Carranza and you know, we get two shots on goal. So um against a weak I should say I shouldn't say a weaker team, but a team below us in the table, an Eastern Conference team that at home. Um yeah, bad. But let's focus on the positive back-to-back clean sheets by this back line that three weeks ago we were trashing. So some good, some bad.
0: Well, we've got a question that's not focusing on the positive. <laughs> David Sabillin wants to say uh, it was a fair result. If not lucky to come away with one point, Toronto FC looks clearly better than the Revs without Bowen Barrero and the MLS talent arms race. Are the Revs falling behind? In other words, the Revs just arrived at MLS 3.0, but other teams are upgrading to 4.0 thoughts.
1: I think one thing you have to remember about the revolution, and I'll, I'll put the, glass half full i think one thing you got to remember about the revolution is that they've really invested in the academy and they're late to the game in this it's not an excuse they are late to the game and in investing in their academy but they have put some resources there and they have done a very very nice job of creating the residency program and bringing in rob brecca who has done a great job there's an article in the bent musket by seth mccomer um, where he spoke to them uh, it's a great article they just won the MLS Next Cup, the U-19s. And Esmir uh, and and Jack, uh, I'm going to mispronounce the name, uh, uh gets called up to the United States U-19 team, and Bureka gets called up as a coach. Um, that's incredible. And that's something that five years ago didn't happen. So I think in terms of a senior team, the Revs are buying, they're, they're doing this value model. They're buying the Petrovics. They're buying the Vrionis. They're buying the Buxes. They're buying the Carlos Heels. They're buying younger or maybe i'll say in carlos Hill's case a damaged asset um where he was bought from the second division in spain um but they're finding value at it and they're 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 not going to ever be the highest spending team but they're gonna find value and good players in pockets where other teams aren't or just miss it um and in terms of the academy that fruit will be harvested later down the road so I think right now we're seeing some other teams go by us because they have these young, exciting players or they're having these big-name signings. The Revs are never going to have the big-name signings, but you got to remember, I think that the next wave of young players, they're going to be here in a few years. It's, it's just going to require a little bit of patience. Um, and again, if you look at what Philadelphia is doing, Jack McGlynn scored his first MLS goal this weekend. Um, they are just spawning kids like it's nothing. And if the Revs can get there... They're going to be a team like Philadelphia where they always have cheap, homegrown talent that they're selling for big fees. That's a model that's going to keep them at the top of the standing. So if this works out, um, I think the Revs will catch up. I I would say they fell behind definitely in the academy uh, for, for years, but they're getting there.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. They need more out of their academy. And on paper, it looks like they're going to get there. Um, So hopefully that's the case. And when we talk about the academies, too, the residency program is huge because they can bring guys kind of from out of their territory. And, you know, fair or not, I think you can argue that New England maybe doesn't produce as many good soccer players as you know Southern California or some other regions, other MLS teams are in, which is always inherently limiting of your academy uh, if you want to make excuses for the Res Academy. Um, So I think the residency program is huge. Uh, As far as the talent arms race, if you look at the Revolution's DPS, they had the most, the three most effective DPS, the combination of the three, anyways, in MLS last year. So, you know, you can complain that they're not spending as much, um, but really, when you're, you know, we've had this conversation before. When you're talking about not spending as much, you're talking about the DPS, Um, and to some extent, you're talking about the TAM players. And I, I think the Revolution are. Spending probably about what they can with Tam. Um, and on the DPs, if, if you're complaining about the spending, it's, you know, which one, guy would you get rid of to bring in a bigger name or a more expensive player? And, you know, you're not getting rid of Carlos heel, who's still, I think, you know, a top 10 or at least top 15 paid guy in MLS. Uh, Gustavo Bo is up there as well. Um, and, you know, maybe you want to upgrade him. I don't know. It's, it's getting too much into the weeds there. But I think you have to be happy with the Revolution's DPs. Um, and I think they compare very well to most teams in MLS. Um, if you're looking at Toronto and saying, you know, hey, Lorenzo Insignia is one of the biggest names to come to MLS. He's a guy that's in his prime that plays in the Italian national team. They got Bernadeschi, another guy on the Italian, Italian national team. They got Rosito, the left back, who's, I mean, 35, so a little bit different. Um, but, you know, the Rebs aren't going to compete with that. Um, I think Toronto is spending insane sums to bring some of these guys in um, and, you know, expecting to lose money on it. And they're okay with that. Uh, Bob Kraft isn't going to do that. I don't think there's any owner that the revolution you know, could realistically have that would do that. Um, and then you look at a team like LAFC. LAFC brought in Garth Bale on TAM money, which is absolutely insane to me. One of the you know, one of the best players in the world coming into the to LAFC on TAM money. That's not going to happen in New England. You know the, the appeal. We got to be realistic. There's an appeal to playing in LA. Um, the opportunities off the field for marketing and branding and you know all the things you can do to make money off the field. Um, and the Southern California weather is pretty nice too. Uh, whereas opposed to coming here and you know Boston as a market is. You know, it's a good market, but it's not as exciting as LA for a lot of players. It's a world, you know, worldwide. It's not as well known or as exciting. Um, you know, I've made the comparison to the NBA before. When you know, when Kevin Durant or LeBron James wants to build their super team, they'd rather do it in Miami or New York or LA than in Boston. And you know, it's the same way for these international soccer players. And then on top of that, we're going to get to with the stadium in a second because that was a question that was asked. Um, you know, not having, not actually being in the city on top of everything else also hurts in playing in Gillette on turf. Uh, and not grass hurts and Foxborough so um, if LAFC is your comparison point, you're, there's no at no point is are the revolution going to be kind of on the same page as what LAFC is doing and I think at no point are the revolution going to be at the same page as what Toronto is doing and I think if Toronto ever had another owner Toronto wouldn't be doing what Toronto is doing um, so as a fan of MLS, much respect to what both of those teams are doing, I'm glad to see these names coming into MLS um, but I, I don't think the revolution are falling behind in far the talents of their DPs, I think there's a very good job of kind of getting there with less money and focusing more on the talent and less on the names, um, and that's working out well. But I completely agree with you that they need to get more out of their academy long term if the, the success is going to be sustainable.
1: And again, LaFC exempt from this conversation because it's the the you know what what's happening out there is ridiculous and potentially not legal in my mind. <laughs> but um, let's leave LaFC out of this if we're talking about TFC because this was what this question to ask about tfc has missed on designated players they've been you know agreeing to mutual buyouts they've been selling players they've taken they, losses traded they
0: dom Dwyer so another team could buy them is buy so yep. their
1: buyout on Josie. yep um they've missed on dps they've spent a lot of money to clear out these guys to spend more more money on them so they're losing money on these transactions um, and if you look at the other teams that have i'll say gone after the big names what's miami done um what's cincinnati done Atlanta had a great team a few years ago. They sold off a few people. They sold off Almarone. Uh, they lost Tata Martino. Have they hit on any designated players since then? So sometimes people are attracted to the names and the numbers, but buying Shakiri and putting him on the Chicago Fire doesn't do you a ton. So I, I think it's more about finding the right fit and, you know, it, the right fit sometimes is more of a $2 million player than a $10 million player. It's, it's just how it goes. And at the end of the day, in my mind, you'd rather have a team like Philadelphia that is just constantly coaching up youth players and finding youth and developing it. And as opposed to Miami, that's signing five designated players and none of them really care about MLS. Uh, and, and in terms of designated players, I'd rather have Hani Mukhtar, who was a nobody going to Nashville, than Blaze Matuidi.
0: I I agree with all that. The only thing I will say is that I love what Toronto is doing. I think that the fact that they're signing these guys and taking these risks and moving on from them by spending outrageous sums of money to get out of the contracts is absolutely amazing. And their ownership deserves all the credit in the world, but I don't think there's another owner out there that's going to buy an MLS team and do that level of spending and that level of loss. Um, But full credit to Toronto and nobody should be complaining about what Toronto is doing because it's it's just amazing that their owners are willing to do that. Um, I wish every MLS team had owners like that, but there's only so many billionaires out there that are willing to just throw money away um, and, and hope it hits. And I, I, I can't see Toronto not being successful within the next couple of years with the guys that they've signed and with Bob Bradley as the coach. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of years there where they haven't been particularly successful and they've spent a lot of money and it hasn't worked out. Um, but i got to give their owners all the credit in the world for you know, being quick to cut bait and cut ties when when things aren't working out and spending lots of money, Josie being an example, to, to do so. So you know, good good for them, right? <laughs> and,
1: and, and to be very fair, if you look at the guys that have moved this league forward, I mean David's question talks about MLS 3.0, the Atlantas, the TFCs, the LAFCs, there are a lot of ownership groups that have come in and been very aggressive, and it has had an impact on Robert Kraft. Um, it has had an impact on other teams around the league that might have been playing money ball and then at one point woke up and said, you know, I really can't develop through the draft. We need to. So so it has had an impact on the revs that has trickled down. I just don't think the revs are ever gonna get there. And maybe for the revolution, because we're not in the most appealing market. Maybe it is good to focus on the up-and-coming players that are looking to use MLS as a stepping stone, come here, put in three good years, and then sell for a bigger number. I I, I don't think that model—there's no right or wrong model, but I think maybe for this case, I I don't blame the Revs for doing that. Then again— buying Shaqiri and paying him $7 million.
0: I just think Toronto stands in a category of their own for what they're doing, and that's not MLS 4.0. That is Toronto. Because you look at Atlanta, too. Atlanta spent a lot of money, and I think they pushed the league forward, like you said, but they're still buying generally younger guys, like Al Morone, who they were able to sell for a lot of money, Joseph Martinez, who they probably would have sold for a lot of money if he didn't you know, have a season-ending injury a couple years ago. That I mean, he's getting better now, but he wasn't the same player for a little while. Um, they're generally buying younger guys that are maybe more well-known than who the Revs are buying as South American players, but they're not not buying big names they're not buying Italian national team players they're buying young guys but they're spending a lot of money but there's still an opportunity to profit so I think the Atlanta United model is a very good one and what they're doing is you know Maybe something the revolution could replicate by you know being better at scouting and spending a little bit more on some of the guys that they're bringing in from South America, um, but I just personally think Toronto is in kind of a league of their own or what they're doing, and that's not that's not MLS four point oh. That's just Toronto having incredible owners that are willing to go to any ends to buy the you know the biggest name players, and that has helped the league. You know, bringing in. Um, you know, the guys that they brought in have brought more attention to the league. The Revs had, you know, close to 30,000 fans at the game last night. and know it was, I think it was season ticket holder member night, and there were some free tickets given away. But I think part of that, too, was the fact that there were three guys that have played on the Italian national team playing at Gillette Stadium, and there's a the big Italian population in Boston. I'm sure there were some people at the game because of that. Um, you know, we've seen that before. It brings the league forward. So, again, great what Toronto's doing. That to me is not MLS 4.0, that is Toronto being Toronto.
1: We, we could do this a long time, but I think our, our listeners are tired of allocation disorder and they want to get back to Revolution <laughs> Recap.
0: <laughs> well, a couple questions left, no, not about the game. James Downing wants to know, is the Everett Stadium deal de-
1: dead? The session ended today. I, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. We'll, we'll know probably when we post this. We'll see a news article, but I didn't hear anything today. I was busy today. Uh, I don't know if you know I was calling the supporters game, uh, which was fun. Shout out to the Rebellion and the Midnight Riders. Uh, but I didn't see anything I assume we'll hear about this later this week.
0: I mean, if I know politicians, they weren't working on Sunday, so I don't think, I don't think anything <laughs> happened today. But probably don't,
1: well, not What they work? What Tuesday through Thursday? So maybe we'll hear about it Wednesday. Um, I, I don't have hopes for this. I I don't know. I, I think this comes down to how much lobbying is being done behind the scenes. That's my guess. I don't know. It it depends on if. I don't know. I, I really have no idea.
0: Well even if it's not in the bill it doesn't mean it's dead. It just means it's harder for it to happen yes. because the bill was to basically streamline it to get away the get rid of the you know environmental environmental requirements that were involved in it and kind of go past that. And this just means that you know it's not going to happen behind closed doors if it doesn't get through it's going to going to take more effort and more lobbying from crafts to make it happen. So it doesn't necessarily I don't think we'll know that the deal is dead this week but you know we'll probably know it's a lot harder for it to happen. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not writing off this being a possibility if it doesn't, if it's not included in part of the bill. Um, none of us were expecting this to happen. None of this kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but it does make it a lot harder for Bob Kraft, So
1: I just want to say, too, I agree with everything you said. I do want to take a moment because we got our hopes up two weeks ago, and we we might have uh, been a little too optimistic on that. So uh, I do know uh, someone said they uh, got their hopes up because of our episode. Uh, So uh, sorry about that. I didn't realize that when you pass a bill in the House – the deal is reworked in the Senate. I guess I'm not very familiar with the political process. I'm a, more of an expert on bird law. I'll go toe to toe with anyone I want bird law. But in terms of writing a bill, I didn't realize you could strip amendments to it when it went to the Senate. So I was like, oh, yeah, this thing's basically all done. The Senate's not going to turn down a funding bill. Uh, so, yeah, my bad. Uh, there were some more hurdles than I thought when we talked about it two weeks ago. I do wonder if it would have slipped through if there hadn't been the attention,
0: attention put on it, if it hadn't been, you know, whoever leaked it or focused on it and put it in the newspaper and got the, called up the environmental activists to get their take on it. I feel like if that hadn't happened that maybe it would have snuck through the Senate, but there was because of that there was kind of the pressure for you know, for them to do something about it.
1: I forget if I said this on the podcast last week or if I just said this uh, to you privately, but my initial response was they, this was said kind of as a now that this is through, we'll tell everyone what's happening. And and I think the sources that were talking to the globe about it were more or less trying to kill this. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would imagine that that publicity didn't do much. But as you say, it's not necessarily dead. There might still be a stadium, but they might just have to work around some regulations or get some permits or have public debate or whatever. Still will probably be a lot harder, uh, but uh, tips the hand that Everett is a real thing.
0: They might actually have to care about the environment when they're building the stadium. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: James, James had one more question. Last question. We haven't talked about it yet. I'm sure you have some thoughts. Thoughts on Josie Altidore's loan to Puebla, which is through December. Um, We don't know how much of the salary they're covering. I think we've both kind of heard through the grapevine that it sounds like they're covering the Revs' portion of a salary. So we assume the Revs are getting salary relief in addition to opening up a roster spot, but we don't know that for certain. Uh, But just general thoughts on Josie's loan through December and, of course, noting that he does come back in December and has two more guaranteed years with the Revs.
1: Yeah, uh, a a couple people that I trust – privately have kind of implied that the whole salary is paid but that hasn't been publicly reported and they didn't publicly report it the so revs portion of the, the revs point. portion yeah. not the tfc portion so i but i also so they didn't say it so i don't know if that's still working on confirmation or if you know there's some details or something like that um and of course it's the revs remaining salary throughout the season so what are we talking about two months so maybe that's such a small piece of the pie that it's fine to kind of move them down there um I would find it hard to believe that the whole revs portion is paid for unless it's small. So maybe that's the case. Um, And the other thing, too, is this is a three-year deal. So maybe the revs are paying a bigger portion next year, and we know they're paying the full portion in year three. Maybe they're paying a smaller portion in year one in this deal. We don't know the structure of this contract. So, um, again, it's kind of hard to figure out if this is a good move or a bad move. But I think overall, if you're the revs, this is a win. We kind of talked about how Josie's role – is probably going to be very limited going down to the end of the, the year where he's going to be maybe a 10 or 15 minute um, poacher in the box to get you a goal, to seal you a goal. There's not much more of a role for him here. I think this gives him a chance to get some minutes, kind of regain his form. If he goes down there and kills it, he either comes back to the revs and he has a role with the team or the revs can shop him elsewhere and and he's created a market for himself. So I think that this is really the best for him too. Um, I I hope he does well. I'm wishing the best. Um, I hope he kills it. Not just because uh, from a revolution standpoint that, you know, I I hope he creates a resale value for him too, but it just seemed like there was a lot of tension behind the scenes. Bruce arena said that Josie initiated this move uh, and Josie's agent who, boy, God bless him. Uh, He, he works wonders, Uh, you know, found him another team that wants to take him on. And as I say, I I think this is really best for everyone involved and seemed like the revs this year was a situation that was bad for Josie. Now it was asked for Bruce arena to reflect on that move. And Bruce said, you know, it's not over. He's coming back next year. Don't know if that's the company line or if he's going to come back and, and maybe he's got that kind of role for him again next year. But um, either way, I I think this is nothing but positives. And even if he goes and kind of flops I think for the revs, it's going to be a little bit easier to manage the forwards up top with Bo uh, and Vrioni.
0: Yeah, I think everyone agrees at this point that the Josie experiment was a failure. Um, and the worst case scenario of this move is that you've gotten rid of Josie for six months and open up a roster spot and some level of cap space, likely, likely some level of cap space. Um, so at least you've bought yourself some six months. But the only thing I will say is, you know, we already are, we already know this it, that this was a failure. But this is really an admission that this was a failure uh, to go and loan him for six months because when you looked at this contract and we talked about it before, said they're giving Josie three guaranteed years. He's 32 this year. This was the year that you thought you might get value out of that contract because it was his youngest year. You know, he had some time off. He we were told that he was coming in very healthy. He you know, he went on that podcast, MLS uh, was I think it was with was with Andrew Weeb, I think, yeah, went on the podcast where he um, he was you know, saying that he, he fails like a teenager or something, and it, it, they sold us all the, the magic beans of how good he was going to be and how healthy he was and how he was like a kid again and he was going to absolutely tear up the league. And it said, all right, 32 years old, maybe he's having this career revival. This is going to be the year he's going to be worth it. Next year at 33, yeah, maybe he'll sell something in the tank. 34, there's no way he's going to be worth that TAM contract. Well, now they're giving up on the 32-year-old year, and they're stuck with you know, the 33-year-old year. That, uh, you know, What scenario is he going to be worth the money at 33, given what we saw this year? And then the 34 year. So, it, it, I mean, this is an admission: that the entire move was a failure because they're giving again, they're giving up six months of what should have been the best year of this contract, given Josie's age. Um, so, you know, best case scenario is he does pretty well in Mexico and they buy him, and the Revs can just move on. Um, but it's uh, six months. Worst case scenario, six months. It's a good deal for the Revs. They got rid of Josie, but it's it's an admission that this was a failure.
1: Is there any? Chance is that the the percentage chance higher than zero is there any percentage higher than zero that Josie Altador is playing for the Revs in 2024?
0: Um, I, yes, I guess because it's so much money to buy him out, right? I mean, you, you don't
1: think they just cut him a check and go away? I mean, in my mind, I think they should. In, in my mind, he's not going to be a de- you're either going to move him to be a designated player, which is a waste of a designated player spot, or you're going to use up so much cap space on him. I mean, even with Tam or however it's calculated. I mean you're paying the full salary so it's 625,000 against cap. You're that's dead money. I, I I again maybe he finds the fountain of youth down in Mexico. I don't know.
0: I mean I think the percentage chance of him playing in 2024 is very close to zero but I don't I I wouldn't say it's zero. I think just when you factor in how much salary is owed to him. I mean, if the Reds were to buy him out after the season, I think they have to pay him something like $3 million out of Bob Kraft's pocket, um, where you know a portion of his salary now is covered by the league, the portion that's under the cap, and then it's MLS funny money instead of you know, money out of Bob Kraft's pocket. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think he's on this team in 2024. I don't think he's on this team in 2023, um, but I wouldn't say it's a 0% chance. You're
1: also forgetting we're getting about million on the Petrovic sale uh, after the 2023 (laughs) season. So that's a small percentage to buy out Josie. Got it. You forgot about that.
0: Well, and they want to buy out Omar too, I would say. Uh, This year. This
1: year, Omar. Next year, (laughs) Josie.
0: What they should do is if they were Toronto, they would trade Omar to FC Dallas and say, hey, FC Dallas, here's Omar in a draft pick. Buy him out for us. We're going to use our buyout on Josie so we can move on from both of them.
1: (laughs) By the way, one thing that's not talked about, I know we make jokes about that. You know Dom Dwyer is like suddenly good again? Maybe Josie's going to be suddenly good again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do want to just say, though, I want to stress one more thing. It does add a second senior roster spot. The revs have one open senior roster spot. They loan out Josie. Now they have two. So they can bring in multiple players this week. So
0: No international spots, though. Still. No
1: international spots. No supplemental roster spots right now, although maybe one will open up because if you're paying attention to revs 2, maybe someone hasn't been in the lineup lately, and I think that player might be hurt and might be going on season-ending injury list, so that might open up a supplemental roster spot. So uh, there is some flexibility in terms of the rosters uh, in, in terms of adding players over the next couple of weeks. So you might see a couple senior players come in and maybe they add someone from Revs too um, for this home stretch. I wouldn't be shocked.
0: And I will say too that we have seen Revs players get green cards quicker than the period of time Carly's Hill and Gustavo Bo have been here. And I, obviously pandemic and all this stuff has probably slowing those processes down, but you know, don't be surprised if Carlyce Hill in particular or Gustavo Bo ends up getting a green card in the not-too-distant future. I don't know if that happens in time. make can move by August 4th. Um, but, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it had happened and the revs just hadn't announced it either. Uh, but, you know, don't be surprised if that happens. Maybe in the offseason is more likely than now. But both of those guys, again, have, you know, Luis Caicedo got it in a shorter period of time than those guys have been here. And
1: you can acquire one, too. I mean, the revs should have a fair amount of allocation money, I'm sure. And, and I don't know how the allocation money... Equation works with Josie being loaned, but I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of move you could make for an, an international I, spot if you need one. I, I
0: haven't spent the time to figure out which teams have open spots, but I'm sure there are some out there that you could. I mean, and, and there'll it, be a market. As you, the closer you get to the deadline, too, the easier it is to get one because, you know, once you get to August 3rd and yeah. I don't know. FC, since I, I don't know who has an open roster spot. I'm not going to throw out a name and get laughed at. But Colorado, <laughs> San
1: Jose, San Jose, I'm sure. They're not good. Yeah, they I'm, must not have any. I'm right.
0: sure they have an open one. And if you get to August 3rd and they're not going to make a trade, then yeah. there's very little value in that to them. And if the Reds want to give them, you know, 50K and for an international roster spot for the last 10 games of the season, um, you know, why wouldn't they do that? So there's there should be an opportunity to bring in another international spot.
1: Shout out to the first listener that tweets at me and says Colorado and San Jose have used all their international <laughs> <Not> roster spots. <laughs> Not only used them all, also traded for extra ten. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that could happen. Uh,
0: I think that's it for questions. This has been a long one, but uh, any final thoughts? Uh,
1: I do want to quickly mention a quick follow up on a podcast we had earlier this year. The U.S. amputee soccer team. We had a great interview with Nico Calabria, the cap- captain of the team. Um, they uh, that was around the time they did their exhibition at halftime for the revs. Uh, they had the U S uh, or sorry, they had the world cup draw. They have the world cup later this year. Uh, and the groups were pulled this, this week, uh, group C there with England, Argentina, and Indonesia. So, um, Please go follow uh, the U.S. Amputee Soccer Team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Follow along with them. Uh, But we know who we're facing in the World Cup. And we got another England-USA World Cup matchup uh, to get hyped up about. I believe that's in October, so there might be some overlap with the MLS playoffs. But I just wanted to put that on everyone's radar, that the Amputee Soccer World Cup right around the corner.
0: Yeah, another chance to beat England. Always always exciting to have that.
1: Do you think the Amputee Soccer Team says it's coming home? (laughs) Yeah, right?
0: I did. I did see those tweets when the uh, England woman won the uh, the Euros today. So, oh, is it? Yep. Well, <laughs> I, that was actually. I think they were sarcastic. I think they were jokes this time. I know
1: you laughed at that, but that was actually a serious question. Like I, I assume so, but they said uh, Nico said Turkey is like the founding place of. So maybe Turkey says it's coming home.
0: Didn't England invent every kind of soccer? That's
1: what I mean. I don't know. I,
0: I don't know. I have to look into this. Well, actually go. actually, Seattle did, but that's
1: that's true. So we should say it's coming home. <laughs> that's it. We'll say it. Coming home this October. Go USA.
0: <laughs> and then this December. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh before we wrap things up, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they see the pictures of you celebrating your amazing goal well, you can, <laughs> this well, weekend? I'll
1: post it on at Revolution Recap on Twitter. I'll also post it on the Revolution Recap Instagram, Instagram page. Um, if you want to see my thoughts on how terrible the Red Sox are and Simpsons quotes, uh, please follow me on Twitter at Real G. Johnstone. And before you wrap up too, I want to give a shout out to Esteban who left us a review and a five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you so much, Esteban. If you want to be cool like Esteban, go leave us a five-star review on iTunes.
0: That was a great plug. I will not have to mention iTunes now. Or our social media, which is Revolution Recap on everything. Uh, so not very hard to find. You can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. And, again, follow the podcast everywhere. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Revolution Recap. Greg gave you the reasons why. Um, if you don't, not going to rate us on iTunes, rate us on Spotify. We could use more ratings there. And thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.
1: You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks?